Welcome to Reputation Town. Welcome, everyone, to episode 12 of Reputation Town. Uh, John Paranak, how are you doing today? Great, Warren. How are you? Doing okay. It's a rainy day here in our neck of the uh, the GTA. Yeah, uh, at risk of being f- flooded out soon, given the amount of rain that's on the way, too. It didn't rain like this when we were kids. No, it's it's everything is getting worse. Although, it was, I think it was because it snowed more. Not in July, obviously, but you want to talk about snow. I'd, I'd compare your hometown with mine for snow any, any day. Fair, fair point. So episode 12, we are eight away from the barrier that 90% of podcasts never make it to. We are trudging along one a week. I'm, I'm actually amazed that we uh, have continued this pace. And uh, our first guest last week, having Molly on, I thought that was uh, a lot of fun. Yeah, it was. She's really smart. And it was a great conversation with her. I encourage people to listen to that episode. I think we talked about a, a, a bunch of stuff that's really topical. And uh, I, I do have her book. I'm, I'm planning to read it on vacation. I really want to get into it. I flipped through it. I love the way it's laid out. She's got copies of actual tweets and some really, um, I read a couple of the first pages. Her writing style is really cool. So I encourage people to, uh, to pick up Indestructible. Um, any off-topic stuff you wanted to get in before we jump into the, the reputation piece? I think it's really cool the 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 space race that's happening now between Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos. Like, first off, just pause for a second and think think back twenty years and think at some point in the future there will be two billionaires who are essentially having midlife crisis crises, <laughs> where one is racing the other to get to space first. That, that if that was that was like a a TV show uh, plot, people would laugh. <laughs> yeah, it's very unbelievable. And, and, but but here it is exactly and, and just like the 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 public relations around this is going to be bananas i think <laughs> i think uh bezos is supposed to go up on the 19th around the 19th and now branson said he's going to make make an attempt around the 11th right um and who do you uh, think is the smartest one of all i don't know they're both pretty accomplished like they both have pretty pretty much have uh, stories that are that are cool as business people and, and what they've achieved. I, I the thing is if I'd say anything, I'm not sure either of them has a solid business model for their space ventures. <laughs> like how much space, how much is space tourism actually going to, going to, going to develop. And, and Bezos has this, you know, bigger, um, uh, bigger aspirations of developing launch vehicles to do all sorts of different things beyond this sort of little, amusement park ride that he has that he's going to take on the, on the 20th. But mm. we haven't really seen evidence of how that's going to materialize in, in, in a real sense. So I don't know. I was going to say, I think the smartest one is Elon Musk. Cause he's not launching himself into space. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. He's like, you know what? I think I'll wait down here and let some other people launch themselves. And he's space. actually has a rocket business. that's like driving profit, producing revenue. Yeah. And yeah, you know, he's developing a whole constellation of satellites to deliver internet anywhere on the planet. That's going to be a recurring <laughs> revenue source, but he's it's doing a, it safely from the ground. Yeah. Yeah. He just sends his car up and other, other stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it, you know, you have to ask yourself like, like does, uh, I, I, I always think of like Elvis, right? Elvis Presley, when he, at the, at the end of his life, when he was wearing those ridiculous jumpsuits and taking karate lessons and he's shooting the TV 
just eating and drugs and just killing himself. And they had those those guys around him, his his pack of enablers, <laughs> the mm-hmm. Memphis Mafia. And their whole job was just like, yeah, Elvis, yeah, that's great, Elvis, that's great. Like, whatever you want, Elvis. And I think, you know, obviously I wasn't there, but you hear stories that everyone just said what he wanted to hear so you wouldn't get fired and you wouldn't be cast outside the circle. So you, we end up with this bunch of these yes men and then you veer off into these, it's like Michael Jackson owning monkeys and, you know, circus ranches and stuff like that. Does Jeff Bezos have anybody to sit him down and say, hey, dude, this is probably a bad idea? Because the risk of you blowing yourself up is not zero. Yeah, no, it's a good question. And a lot, a lot of times, no, the answer is no. It's just, there are just yes people around. Uh, like I, you know, I just, I can't, I'm, I'm actually not, I mean, I'm a kind of nervous flyer, just like normal airplane flights. Like I'm just thinking here, man, this, this metal tube with thousands of gallons of kerosene, you know, <laughs> and just, it doesn't seem like it's a great idea. And so to, to, to go an exponential step beyond that and launching yourself into space, you have these people who are like, you know, billionaires, they have decades left to live if they're healthy. I just don't see the upside in, in doing this. Is it ego? Oh, for sure. For sure. I would I would also say I don't see the upside in doing it. if you're gonna go into space, like actually go into space, but both Branson and Bezos, it's a, like a and I shouldn't speak for Branson because I'm I can't remember exactly um how long the, the trip is, but mm. for Bezos it's like a fifteen minute ride. Like he's going sub or into suborbital space. And it just like baby space. Up, and then it's a parachute ride down. So yeah, he gets to float around for 10 minutes. But to your point about the risk reward ratio there, if you're going to space, like actually maybe go to the, maybe like, do you, remember in the, in the, uh, in the, I think it was in the nineties, there was a, a Russian billionaire who went up to the space station because Russia was, um, they needed some money, they needed cash. And so they were, yeah. they did a few of those. Uh, um, but anyway, or like Tom Cruise coming up with his movie, right? He's he's going up to the space station to film up there. Uh, he's taking a Falcon Nine up, um, I think next year. No way. Yeah. Yeah. Also, not a good idea. <laughs> like this is a guy who's hanging off the side of airplanes. Like <laughs> there's CGI. Like it's not. I can't tell the difference. You know, maybe a little bit, but like I don't know. You're Tom Cruise, and all that comes with that. Maybe the Scientology people told him he was going to be okay. <laughs> what about you? What's uh, what's yeah, what about you? What what's on your mind these days? Uh the Bill Cosby thing has been a weird oh, story yeah. this week. And uh it, it uh, from out of nowhere, I thought this guy was locked up forever and suddenly there he is. He's out. And um <laughs> one of the funnier tweets I saw was like, "No, we said free Britney." And you know, not not Bill Cosby obviously. And I don't even understand the technicality that he it, it seems like a really there's this overwhelming mountain of evidence and accusers and like he, he's basically confessed to these crimes and he gets out on this like really technical um legal situation the the curious thing to me because you know from a reputation standpoint it's more of a legal issue but um i don't know did you see the tweet from uh, mrs cosby felicia rashad did you see that no i didn't so it was basically uh you know i gotta look it up because i don't want to paraphrase paraphrase it so this could be a bit of an editing moment and this is recurring. This is a recurring theme on the podcast where you'll say, "Did you see the thing?" And I'll say, "No, I didn't see. <laughs> no, I didn't see the thing." <laughs> okay, so her tweet was, 
Felicia Rashad, Mrs. Cosby, America's mom from back in the day. Um, Oh, oh, she deleted it. Uh, Okay. All right. Oh, the plot thickens. All right. So it was, it was basically the tweet was something like finally justice is being done. uh, And, you know, about him being released. It was like some, some tweet that was like, thankfully he's being, uh, you know, uh, justice has finally been served or something like that. And she had, uh, you know, that Twitter has that feature where people can't comment on it. Only. Oh yeah. You, you yeah. mentioned or whatever. So, yeah. So then she had another tweet, which is now her, the, the, the main pin tweet on her account is I fully support survivors of sexual assault coming forward. My post was in no way intended to be insensitive to their truth. Personally, I know from friends and family that such abuse has lifelong residual effects. My heartfelt wish is for healing. And there's 15,000 comments underneath that are like not very pleasant. So um, (laughs) I'll let you, you know, you can guide yourself to Twitter to figure that out. But I'm just from a reputational standpoint for her. And that tweet was up for a couple of days. Like why, you know, I just, even if that's what you think, Mm -hmm why would you do that? Why would you tweet that? And, you know, some people could say like, she's out of the game and maybe she's retired and, and all of that, even though I think she was in a movie a couple of years ago, but she has a daughter who's, you know, very active in the, in the business. I don't know if you know, if you watch billions, that's her daughter um, who plays on that show. Oh, Kandala interesting. Rashad. And uh, anyway, I just thought that was a curious thing to tweet when, uh, you know, it's a, obviously a very, very polarizing issue. A lot of people were really angry and I just found that curious that she would do that anyway so she appears to have uh, deleted it since well there you go another another social media lesson right there <laughs> okay we, we chatted about it's a bit of a light week going to be a short pod this week but we had chatted about a few topics that we wanted to uh throw on the table um why don't you pick whichever one you like best and we'll start with that okay this, this is a bit of a, a tough one i think and i'm not sure there's a there's a there's an answer to it but i thought it'd be interesting to explore because i think it's been a topic i've heard people talking about quite a lot is so last week we talked a bit about um, the growing uh, realization in Canada that you know there, there there are lots and lots and lots of children buried around uh, former residential schools and unmarked graves, and I think that it's safe to say we're only at the front end of understanding the full scope of of what happened at these schools over I don't know gosh eighty years or something like quite I think probably it was over more 100. than that hundred years. I'm, I'm, I'm betraying my lack of uh, knowledge on the topic already, mm-hmm. I think, but I think that's common for a lot of people. But at any rate, <clears throat> what we saw was going into Canada Day, this this sort of tension between this growing realization of what, what's happened and celebrating Canada and celebrating Canada Day. And I, I say tension because I think there there is a dissonance that exists in, in people's minds where um, you you can celebrate Canada and you can also be respectful of the, the, you know, re- recognizing what's happened or what happened at, at residential schools and, and the, the, the two can coexist, but, but there's been some voices and some pressure on companies and organizations to, to, to say, no, 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 actually there's only, only one of those two things can't exist at the same time. And so I think we saw like uh, one example was this: the company that runs the CN Tower. They decided to uh, not do a Canada Day light show. Instead, they were going to just uh, light up the tower orange in recognition of um, <clears throat> uh, the residential school um, uh, issue. 
and uh, and I think other companies as well. And and it it just shines a light on the challenge that organizations have when you have these currents happening in the um, um, in popular culture or in, in in the media. Like I think we saw it like a year ago it was um, you know the the after George George Floyd's murder, the Black Lives Matter. And, you know, how do companies respond to that? In this case, it's a challenge because on one hand, you've got, I think, um, uh, two very valid sort of narratives. And how do you reconcile the two? So for companies, I think they were similar being forced to choose one or the other. And if you chose the if you chose necessarily the wrong one, you might like, well, no, actually, no, the wrong one. There is no wrong one. If you chose to, no matter what you chose, you were faced with potential criticism and how do you, how do you deal with that? So I thought it was an interesting topic to maybe just dive into uh, mm-hmm. how an organization manages that. Um, you know, <clears throat> do you have any initial thoughts on it? It is, it's a really tough issue and uh, these issues keep popping up. You know, you mentioned George Floyd and then, you know, what's interesting is uh, especially in social media and there's a, a like, a, I guess a subset of society is really vocal on there and and then they're kind of watching large brands like, you know, like and just to pick a name, like, you know, Burger King hasn't said anything about this. Like, where does Burger King stand on this? And so if you're in, you know, corporate communications, uh, media relations, that sort of uh, role, you're you suddenly there's a pressure for your organization to have a, a hot take or to to demonstrate your stand on everything. And and and, and you know, there's there's an element to it that I think a lot of it comes down to authenticity you know, does your brand, is it, is it related to this world? Is it connected to this at all? Um, is it, you know, and it's going to depend, you know, Canadian tire is going to be different from Tim Hortons is going to be different from the local hardware store is going to be different from a flower shop. And, and I think in many cases, the best approach is just shut up, sit down, do your homework, do some reading. Like we talked about last week, we were never taught about any of this stuff in school. Like I, I was, the first I really had heard about this was, um, you know, four or five years ago when Gord Downey was talking about all the stuff when they were on their final tour. And then, um, just, just, just ignorance and, you know, history is written by the people that it's written by. Right. And so obviously they're not going to shine a spotlight and especially when we're in Catholic schools. And so to see this, this stuff coming out is really, um, disheartening, disturbing, uh, horrific. And then you have this element on the other side where these corporations are supposed to have a stance or a take. And so I, I kind of like when it's authentic and I like when, you know, you have leaders who are, and I think you can kind of tell the difference and then you have the performance art of it, right? Which I think that's the piece that, um, it's the easiest to do. Here's your ribbon, everybody. Uh, what colors the ribbon this week? Oh, when this week it's, it's green or this week it's blue or this week it's orange. And you know, th- 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 this occurred to me when I was watching the Stanley cup finals, which, um, Oh, we should probably get into your, <laughs> your hockey predictions <laughs> for any sports betters out there. But I was watching it and, you know, every, all of the commentators have the little, their little ribbon in the same spot. And it's, I'm not saying it's disingenuous, but it's, just, it's like such an easy thing to do. And it's just like, it's the superficial level. Like you mentioned that, you know, um, uh, Jeff Bezos isn't going to real space. He's going to kind of like, you know, junior space. And to me, this is, this is a really easy thing to do. you, you tweet a certain color or you have a certain ribbon or you have like some platitude on, uh, on your website and almost like just so that people will kind of just keep moving along. You know, you don't want to be the, the brand that gets it wrong or the, the one that says the wrong thing. 
like I saw, you know, I don't know if it was just me, and this was not certainly uh, an academic survey, but flipping through social media on Canada Day, I saw a pretty muted celebration. You know, obviously there's no fireworks and everything because of COVID, so that was an easy call for a lot of the municipalities. They didn't have to worry about that. Didn't stop the yahoos from uh, shooting them off for like four hours last night just around the neighborhood. <laughs> Sounds like Bosnia out there. And the dogs hate it. Mm-hmm. But but I guess, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of talking in circles here. Like, I don't have an answer to this. I like when I feel like the company's being authentic and they are trying to take the issue seriously and they're trying to to push the agenda forward and maybe they come out with some some recommendations of here are things to read and here are places to um, to fund, to send donations to. And they, they act as part of the solution as opposed to here's your pin, everybody. We're going to tweet this color today and now check we've ticked the box and they move along to the next thing. I just... Um, it's the performance art of it that I think is uh, irritating or kind of rubs me the wrong way. Well, I, th- I think so. Two two thoughts. I think you're absolutely right, and I, I would I, that kind of performative approach to engaging with people. Um, I think is actually has more risk attached to it than anything because there's there's no substance there, right? And and it's paper thin. And if your organization does bump up against the issue in a, in any any more than a tangential way. Uh, after that point, you're at real risk because you, you just basically showing that it was it was uh, nothing more than just you know a bit of a window dressing or you know waving hands performance to make it look like there's more than 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 uh, than there is. <clears throat> How do you solve for that? Well, you solve for that by as an organization. This is not about taking a ton of resources and time, but as an organization, look at the. They call it ESG, environmental social governance. Like what are the things that um, could impact your organization from an issue management perspective? And, and um, you know, what sort of resources are you going to put against them? Um, and that could be something as simple as what is our policy when it comes to, you know, anti-racism or what is it, you know, what is it, what if, if we have, if we have a, um, uh, a prominent place in the community we're a big employer or something. And we happen to be, you know, in, in, in Southern Ontario, for example, what is our indigenous, you know, recognition going to be and, and uh, be mindful of that. So that when, when an issue like this does come up, we can, we can recognize things and be meaningful about it. But just on the issue of Canada today. So I think, I think the reality is, is that, organizations don't have to be afraid to choose one or the other. You can do both, right? Like I think the interesting thing about Canada is that Canada as I'd like to think anyway, that Canada as a country is, has a set of values that are entirely inconsistent with what went on at residential schools. And so you can celebrate Canada and the values that we, we, we believe it's uh, should be held, that should be held up and and also at the same time call out just you know the the obvious like criminal behavior that happened and and work together towards something better uh as we try and you know live up to those that set of values i think you you can have those two things in mind at the same time i think it's hard for organizations to do because they get sometimes they get frightened because issue management can can sometimes boil down to we just want to stay away from all controversy all entirely and and i think that's though where you run into trouble because if you try and take like from a risk management perspective if you try and take an approach that says 
I just don't want to do anything that courts risk whatsoever. It's actually, there's, there's hidden risk you're forgetting about, which is when you do nothing, uh, that's, that's not a riskless option. Yeah. Right. It, well, it's like an immediate interview. No comment is, is a kind of a comment and you can Entire, make your own yeah. inferences based on that. Yeah. yeah. It's a, it's a tricky one. And, and you know, the timing of everything was, was really interesting with Canada day becoming in the midst of all this. And then these numbers keep coming out like one of the questions I have, and I don't know who, who can answer this, but like, why has this not been done before? You know, why? And maybe just people dragging their feet, but like, you know, they have this technology where they can look underground. Why is this, why was this not done a long time ago? And I, you know, I don't, I don't know if there's a good answer. I don't th- I don't think there is. And I think this is an example of just politically, it just was easier to not deal with it. Right. And well, which is obviously the now. wrong but yeah. it just, that's just the reality of what, what happened. And I think, I think this could be, this could be if, if last year um, was a turning point for anti-racism efforts in organizations, uh, which you'd like to think it was, uh, maybe this is a, a turning point for the way the indigenous history at residential schools is treated. And, and it's not going to just be sort of swept into a process that doesn't, deliver anything is really is meant just to to you know forget about it so if you have the federal government which created the program and the catholic church or like churches i guess christian churches primarily catholic church that ran it what do you think should be and i know we're just kind of spitballing here but you know other than you know wearing your pin and saying saying you're sorry what do you think how do you think they can make this better how do you like you can't make it better but what do you are, are we looking at a massive financial um, transfer from you know the Catholic Church is one of the wealthiest organizations in the world and they were they were pretty they were they were at the center of this like uh, at some point is there a transfer of billions of dollars from the church to the families of these victims uh, <clears throat> who knows possibly the first step is just like an account, actual accounting of what happened of course and figure out and, what was yeah what went wrong yeah. which you know is amazing because when you look back at the truth and reconciliation commission which canada um uh canada had i can't it's probably within five to ten years ago and mm-hmm. looked at a lot of this stuff at the time there was a recommendation made by the chair of that commission to i think they had requested something like 1.5 million dollars to better investigate some of the stories they were hearing from people who were testifying and get a better appreciation for the scope of this. And the government at the time said, uh, no, that's they they turned that request down. It kind of takes away the truth part. Yeah, exactly. And how do you, how how can you have reconciliation without truth? But then you, you know, who who, the government's going to want to, uh, investigate itself. Like, uh, you know, this is, it's just, it's, it's, it's uncomfortable. And so, yeah, like no one, I can see why they wouldn't want to do it, but they're doing the right thing, right? You have to, I think the right thing is in this case to uncover what happened and mm. shine some daylight on it. And <clears throat> that's going to be a, the most uh, cleansing thing possible. Ultimately, I think it's going to be bigger than just Canada Day because Canada Day obviously is in rear view mirror now. Yeah. But I think as, and depending what evolves and what emerges information wise, I think this is going to become a much more prominent story. And I think organizations will have to figure out, how are they, how they're going to respond, but, uh, more to come. It's going to sure. be, yeah, more to come for sure. Um, anything else 
or what, what do you want to tee up next? I, th- I think we should talk about, um, I think we should talk about the sprinter because we talked oh, about, right. we talked about an apology. <laughs> uh, sorry. The burrito lady. The burrito lady. Yeah. The burrito. Uh, Is that drug two, test two burrito? Ago? Was it two ago? I, I think so. Oh, sorry. I was, I'm thinking of the tuna. Oh, right. The tuna. Yeah. Nobody tested positive. No, the, we had a negative test for tuna, positive test for steroids in a burrito. And at the time, I forget the athlete's name, but you had, um, you had commented on the, the length of the apology. There was an Instagram apology that was hundreds and hundreds of words. And, you know, my passion for this and I would never do that. And da, da, da. you've heard this story before. And I, you know, it shouldn't be flipping. Cause I don't know if it was, we don't know what, what the issue was, but the apology was like, they're kind of protesting too much. And so you have this uh, sprinter. I don't know exactly how to pronounce her name. It looks like Shakari Richardson, amazing sprinter, and has a positive test for uh, cannabis and gets a one-month suspension as a result of that. And it looks like, as a result, won't be able to compete in her uh, big biggest race at the uh, upcoming Olympics. Yeah, and you know it's it's obviously too bad, but you know she's taking responsibility. It sounds like for uh, a mistake she made. And uh, the, the the most illustrative thing, and you pointed this out, Warren. I think when we were talking about it before we started, is is her apology is simple, contrite, to the point, <laughs> and and I think will be the, the the key to her moving past this. Like she's going to miss her big mm-hmm. race, but she still could potentially compete in some other, um, like the relay, yeah, uh, competitions yeah. at the Olympics. But she basically says, uh, well, this is in an interview, but she, I guess she tweeted this out as well. She says, like I tweeted yesterday, I'm human. We're human. I want to be as transparent as possible with you guys, whether it's good, whether it's bad, she said. And um, uh, she she basically just summed up to it and said, I made a mistake. And it it it, it is what it is. Yeah, there was um, I saw there was a a different version of her apology from the Washington Post. And it said, you know, I want to take responsibility for my actions. Richardson said, I know what I did. I know what I'm supposed to do. I know what I'm allowed not to do. But I still made that decision. I'm not making an excuse. Short, sweet, like two and a half lines of copy. And I I guess, you know, the the point we were talking about uh, by text earlier is just it's so um, from an apology standpoint, it's so refreshing. First of all, she's admitting it. Yeah, I did it. I'm human. I'm sorry. And after that, there's not much you can, you know, there's not much conjecture. There's not much speculation. You have to kind of respect that. Now, should it be a banned substance is a whole other thing. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not sure cannabis would be <laughs> a performance enhancing drug when it comes to like, you know, being a world-class sprinter and it's legal in so many places, including I believe where she is and where she tested. So, you know, that's going to be something that comes up. Uh, and you know, I saw Ross Rebliotti, the snowboard guy mm-hmm. who, um, tested positive. I saw him trending today, Michael Phelps as well, who uh-huh. uh, is apparently a weed aficionado. And so it's, uh, it's interesting to see, you know, where there might be a day down the road when this drug is, uh, is not, is not banned, but for the time it is, but I thought the apology was uh, refreshing. Uh, you see many athletes, their first inclination is to deny it. And again, we don't know whether it's true or not. In many cases, I think these individuals kind of know what they're doing and they come up with this elaborate story and conspiracies and long posts and and dramatic uh, 
platitudes. And here you have this woman's like, yeah, I did it. I'm sorry. I'm human. And it's just refreshing to see. You know, and I think the thing to think about too, is that the, the game here isn't actually, well, in my opinion, the game here isn't actually when you're dealing with an apology and with a, with an athlete like this in these kinds of situations, it's not about, am I going to get the rules bent so I can get back into my event? I think the apology here is more about her bankability as a, as a spokesperson or as a, like a sponsor from a sponsor standpoint. And if I'm a company and I'm trying to do the calculus around, you know, can we stick with this person? Somebody who takes the approach she's taken, I think is more likely to have um, a better time dealing with the the issues oh, yeah. related to that from a sponsorship standpoint than somebody who's the breeder lady who, you know, has a long complicated explanation that frankly, you kind of roll your eyes at it because it doesn't really hold water. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're, you're totally right on the long-term reputation piece. And it, I'd be curious, you know, is this something that she came with, came up with on her own? Was she being uh, advised by someone? Maybe she has a mentor or somebody, but it's, you know, wh- whoever came up with it, it's good advice. And it speaks to something, uh, the word that's come up a couple times today so far, which is accountability. Ultimately, do I feel like I can trust this person? Uh, people love a comeback story and, you know, hopefully she has another opportunity. Some people are even talking about boycotting um, that event or boycotting the Olympics as fans to try to get her reinstated. So this might be a story that we haven't seen the the last of yet. But if you are in a position where you have to issue an apology or your company has been caught doing something that you shouldn't have, um, the first decision that you make dictates like either, okay, we're going to lie about it. And then you have your decision tree goes in one direction or we're going to tell the truth about it. And your, your options are completely different. And if you choose, we're going to lie about it. You can't, you know, you can't nine steps down the road say, okay, now we're going to tell the truth because it's like worse than, Mm -hmm. than, than anything. So right out of the gate, when she's dealing with a crisis, it was a, it was a sound decision. And from a reputational standpoint, I would say that she will emerge um, stronger. Well said. Mm. Okay. Up next, I think you wanted to chat a little bit about the media interview process and I think this is partly a function of uh, hopefully that it, this would this would be of of some value to to some of our listeners, and partly a function of there was just not a lot of reputation stuff in the news this week. So uh, <laughs> we it's nice that we have these little wheelhouses that we can just kind of dive into and give people a little bit of behind the scenes, like a little bit of a mini media training session. So what did you what did you have in mind uh, in terms of what you wanted to to chat about? With well, this? Let's, I, I thought it'd be interesting if we could just break down. Um, break down the the process of of so you got so so you're going to do a media interview and and what should you do leading up to it because i think for some people or organizations that don't have full-time comms staff or um you know maybe people who are just getting into the getting into the industry the, the there's a there's a sometimes a an idea that you should you know journalist phones and all of a sudden bang it's interview time and, and there's probably uh, some benefit we can do <clears throat> sharing some of our experience and, and what you can do to put yourself in a better position before you actually jump on the phone or, uh, mm-hmm. or, to, or put yourself in front of a camera to, 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 to start an interview. So let's say a uh, journalist calls, calls you and um, uh, you know, they're, they're, they they reached out to you because they're doing a story about you or you know your industry. Uh, what what's the advice you give to people you work with, Warren, when it comes to that moment? What what's the first thing they should do? Okay, so 
And it, it, I'd be curious to get your your advice on this too, because we've been, we've both uh, been counseling people on this for for years. But the I'll start by saying that the the most common mistakes that I see with people, or you know, when you start talking to people about what's your process, and like you try to get. Because it's part media training, it's part kind of counseling or therapy, and a lot of people have baggage around around interviews or preconceived notions. So, I find there's one subset of people who just decline them, and these are often people who have you know they've become the executive director or the CEO, and there's that level of you know they know they should be doing it for the company, but there's a level of kind of concern. They know they're going to be open to scrutiny. They might make a mistake. They might end up, you know, <laughs> profiled on our podcast as someone who kind of messed something up. And so people, and they kind of sheepishly admit, like, oh, I kind of just, I decline or I don't get back in time. I get back like even nine o'clock and they go, oh, it's too late. Oh, I'm sorry. And so I, I have this expression that every time you turn down a positive media interview opportunity, a puppy dies. And it's obviously a tongue in cheek reference, but it's just, it's so difficult to actually get that call or that email. And so to, to just throw it in the garbage, I think is a huge lost opportunity. And then the other group of people who I think make some really common mistakes are the ones who just kind of make up the interview on the, on the fly. So they're like, yeah, sure. Put them through bring ring. They get on the phone and they start just making stuff up and answering off the top of their head. And just, they, 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 they just wing the interview. They improvise it. And, uh, can you do that? Sure. Do, do people do it all the time? Um, I find this particularly with people who are uh, highly intelligent and or very busy because um, they feel like, well, you know, like I've been in this business, what, 17, 22, 34 years. What am I going to learn in the next half hour that's going to make me any better at this? And so they, they wing it. And I think that's a huge lost opportunity. So um, I don't know what might be helpful is do you want me to run through how I would prepare for a media interview myself. Yeah, let's that, do that. That'd be helpful. That's, I think it would be. And then I'd like to kind of get yours because we might have slightly different approaches. Sure. So uh, I don't do a ton of, of media interviews. I'm, you know, both of us are like more behind the scenes people, but I had two interview requests in the last like six months or so um, from the same outlet as a radio station in Montreal. And uh, the guy's name was Ken Connors. He has a show on the weekends there. And so it was interesting that these both emerged from things that I had sent out by Twitter. Um, the first one was, uh, and you know what a fan I am of the royal family. The first one was when Harry and Meghan sat down with Oprah. And he, I, I tweeted something out about it. And he said, you know, we'd like to have you on the show. Do you want to talk about their response? And from a crisis in a management and all that kind of perspective. And the other one was Bruce Springsteen. You might remember he got pulled over for drunk driving on his motorcycle in New Jersey a couple months ago. Do you remember this? Oh, yeah, I do actually know. You mentioned it's it. right before the Super Bowl. And he had his first commercial ever that was appearing on the Super Bowl. I think it was for like, like a beer company, mm -hmm. like Bud or something like that. Anyway. Um, so I said yes to both of those. And so um, you would think if anyone in the world can just wing a media interview, it would be someone who is a media trainer, right? You would think that you know these this process so well that you could just get on the phone and just make it up. And I, I will never, never, never do that. And so here's the process. Um, first of all, you want to create a break. So when the call comes in is not when you want to do the interview. And so, um, and he tapes those, like, it sounds like it's happening live in the morning, but we taped it, I think the day, a day ahead. So I had about a day's worth of notice ahead of time to prepare. And I would say that for each of those, I spent, I would say about 45 minutes preparing. 
And so what does that preparation look like? Um, you have to figure out what the focus of the story is. And for each of these, for the first ones, Harry and Meghan, reputation. For the second one, it was Bruce Springsteen, crisis management, and you know any issues around that. And so then you have to kind of reverse engineer. Who's my audience? Why am I on this show? What's my topic? And then I get out a legal pad and a pen, very old school. You know, I'm not using my phone or my computer. And I just start writing down what I think are the common takeaways from a crisis management or a public relations standpoint. And you want to whittle these down into little bite-sized pieces that are not too long. And then um, I'm Googling news articles. I want to find out, you know, what was the date? Um, where did it happen? For the Bruce Springsteen one, uh, you know, the name of the officer. What was he driving? What was he supposed to be drinking? You want to get all the facts down there. So if something comes up, you're able to speak about it. And then because like a radio interview is a seven or eight minute, you know, conversation style, like, and everyone's going to hear all of it. It's not, you're, just, you're not just playing to your best two quotes. I would sit there and I, I was looking up some uh, titles to Bruce Springsteen songs coming up with like, oh, maybe there's like a little pun that I could use or something funny that we could end on. That's not necessarily always appropriate, but I thought if it comes up, then I can have that there. And so I write all this stuff down. And then I, I scrutinize it and I try to figure out what's the most important piece. I'll start crossing stuff out. I will role play the interview in my mind. I'll try to figure out what my first answer is going to be before the interview even begins. Because sometimes it's very it's a very general question where the, the, the reporter will ask you, oh, we saw that story come out. That What was your take on that? And so there's a bunch of places you can go and to try to figure out what's the most value that you can add. And then, of course, there's a whole bunch of topics that you have to realize, like, what what are the worst questions I could get? What's something that I don't want to talk about? And you have to make that line ahead of time. You don't want to be making those decisions in real time. Um, I would go, uh, you know, I would suggest people, if you can, to do a practice interview. You know, I mentioned role playing it in my mind. Um, that's one way to to practice interview. If you're if you're not really experienced in media relations, I would actually say get someone on your communications team or get your your spouse or someone in your house, maybe one of your uh, teenage or older kids to pretend to interview you and ask you a bunch of questions, record it, watch it back, and then make some changes. But, but, but I really believe that during the course of an interview, it should sound like a conversation. It should sound improvised, but it shouldn't be. Like everything that you should say during a media interview should be the result of a conscious thought ahead of time. Um, that might sound a little controlling, but I think when it's done well, it doesn't sound like you just got out of a media training session. It doesn't sound like you're giving them BS. Like when it's done well, it sounds like art and uh, it can be entertaining and it can be interesting, uh, but I'd like to come up with all of it ahead of time. So there's no surprises during the interview. That's how my process works. How about yourself? That's, that's great, Warren. Um, so the first, if a journalist calls, the first thing I do is I put them on hold and I get my, uh, alter ego, uh, Jack Simpson to take the call <laughs> and pretend <laughs> What was that guy's name last yeah, week? Yeah, that's right. No, no. Oh. Uh, so I don't really do that. Uh, yeah. it's, it really comes down to, uh, like, you do all the things you just <laughs> mentioned about making a break and stuff. But it's, to your point, you take the time to figure out, like, what, are the, what is the, what, what do I want to achieve in this interview? Like, if there's one thing I want people to, to remember mm. after they hear me blah, blah, blah for a while, it's, it's what is that one thing? And because I want to have that in the back of my mind so I can keep re I can make sure I, I hit that off the top potentially and keep reinforcing it because it's probably going to be some sort of critical theme or critical uh, item I want people to remember. I, 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 I often have this um, story I use. So one of my former colleagues, he used to be um, uh, like principal secretary to to 
former premier and he he said the guy his boss the premier had this um saying when i get tired of saying something i know it's the first time people are starting to hear it Mm. and and it it speaks to the need to repeat right and be repetitious when you're delivering messages so that they stick with people and so by the same token you want to have that in your mind in an interview. And that doesn't mean you're going to sound like a robot and just keep repeating the same thing over and over yeah. again, but you want to find ways of like repeating the thematic or reinforcing the thematic so that people take away that, that thing that, um, and to me that's often success in an interview, right? Is is, did I get that really critical point across? And so then I, I do, it's the same kind of, um, thinking that you articulated right where you want to look at like so what are the most important things i i'd like to talk about what are the issues that may come up and how do i deal with those issues and and role play that uh in my mind but also you're absolutely right there's a huge difference between writing it down on paper or thinking it through in your head and actually articulating it like saying it out loud and whether it's in front of the bathroom mirror or like you said getting a colleague or family member to to do a bit of role play, huge, huge impact. It, it, it does so much help and good to prepare you for that, for that interview. And then, um, and then, you know, making sure that you're disciplined when you actually do the interview so that you're not droning on at length, right? Once you feel like you've delivered it in a concise, we're getting lured off topic too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Cause it can sound conversational and like, Oh, while I have you here, and they bring up some late breaking story. Now you're just making up hot takes on the fly, which is not a great strategy. No, no you want, I want to try and avoid that. <laughs> when you, you talked about the repetition, I'd like to just go a little deeper on that. If, if we could, um, it is one of the most important things to do during your interview, but what you find, and I think politicians are the worst offenders at this. They just repeat it verbatim like again and again, Tyler Shandro is, you know, who I, I actually want to talk about him. I don't know if you saw the controversy with him today with the protesters and stuff or yesterday, but, um, he was the one guy who a couple of years ago, there's this clip of him and he just kept saying the same thing over and over and over again, you know, uh, in due course, in due course, he said it about 18 times. And so when, when media trainers tell you to, to repeat your most important messages, I've come up with uh, a description of what I, what I mean by that. Cause like when you repeat the same thing over and over again, it sounds like you're being defensive. It sounds like you're not listening to the question. It sounds like you just got out of a media training session, which is not going to, to build trust. And so I call it going back to the well or, um, or circling back in the car. So you might tell the same, you might have like one really important point, but you might have three or four different ways to, to, to describe it. Or you might have a different proof point or a different story or a different anecdote. And so you're basically saying the same thing, but you're just looking at a different facet of it. To, you know, Maybe one of those is going to resonate a little bit more with the journalist than the other. And so the repetition is important, but it's not like some people take it too literally. And it's just like just this stubborn, blockheaded, uh, verbatim repeating of their messages, which is really... It, it just really erodes the the interview and it's not a successful interview. So I call it kind of just going back to the well. Like, you know, as I mentioned earlier, one of the biggest trends we've been seeing in the last three months is, and maybe you tell it with a slightly different story. Mm-hmm. So that's just a little bit of a nuance that I thought might be of, uh, of use. I think it's, that's so, so important because people do that. I think people do that because they feel like it's, it's safe, safer. But the reality is I think what it does is degrade the credibility of your, of your voice because when people hear it, they kind of discount it because it sounds like it is just what it, it's a bunch of like pre-planned, not, not really genuine stuff you're saying. 
It's very blunt. Yeah. Like you, like some people will think, well, this is the quote that I want to get in. So if this is the only thing I say, they all have no choice but to use it. But after the third time, the reporter's looking at you like, are, like, what's wrong with you? Are you okay? Mm-hmm. Like, why do you keep saying the same thing over and over again? And it, and you know, if it's a live interview and people are seeing the whole thing, the viewers are just like, what is wrong? Huh. And that's what what Shandro did uh, a couple of years ago. And you know, I don't, you know, I got to think these these ministers are media trained up to the eyeballs. I, it's so ridiculous to see th- people of that level making such basic mistakes in their media interviews. You know, it just it depends on the person, right? Some people are, some politicians are really good at it. They're really good at um, riffing on the things. Or, name, name one. Yeah. <laughs> name one. Well, he's not Canadian, but Bill Clinton was a, was a like amazing candidate when it came to that, right? He was like... Speaking of reputations, geez. Well, but he, he was a great politician when it came to that, right? Um, and um, uh, others are not so comfortable with it and they, they need more structure around them. And it's like, it's like spokespeople, right? Sometimes some people are really good at it naturally. They have a natural aptitude for it. Other times, yeah, you know, it's only so far you can, so, so much comfort you can build in someone to go off, be able to, to be in positions where they can feel like they're going off and, and, um, uh, you know, dynamically creating answers versus trying to memorize something that is, is been written for them. Mm. So when I mentioned the Shandro thing, did you see the thing that was in the news in the last like 24 hours or so or no? So I did see, I did see something where he was in his family. I think at some Canada day event were surrounded by anti maskers or something. Yeah. Um, and harassing. And him. they're, they're like yelling and they're like profanities. Yeah. And he's there with his kids. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm not a fan of, of politicians in general or that one in particular, <laughs> just given, although he has given me a lot of fodder for, for, and he was the guy who a couple of years ago went to some doctor's house and confronted him. Do you remember I this? I don't know. He, he was having, like, he's the health minister in Alberta mm-hmm. and he was having, uh, there was some, uh, controversy or argument that he was having with a, with a medical doctor. And he like showed up at the guy's house unannounced and kind of confronted him at the front door and it became this big news story. So kind of a version of that, except when you involve kids, that to me is off limits. When the guy's there with his wife, like his wife is crying and is, he's handing his kids over the fence to other people. Like you, and you don't know what direction this is going to go in, especially in Alberta, right? No, no offense to all the Alberta listeners, but like, it's a different, it's like the Texas of Canada. So you don't know someone could be packing in this crowd. Like you just don't know. Right. Mm-hmm. And so thankfully no one got hurt, but it was a very intimidating protest, uh, where they're, you know, chanting at the guy and just the profanity with the kids there. I think that to me is unacceptable. It sounds like it was, it was frankly just an unhinged group of people who were acting completely inappropriately. And, uh, that's, that's a tough situation to be in no matter who you are. It would, I don't, and again, I wasn't there. I saw some of the coverage, but like, it's so funny to me that people think like there's one set of rules for them and a set of rules for somebody else. The folks who were the folks who were in that circle yelling profanities at him and his kids, I would argue or I would I would kind of suppose that if you reverse if you if you um, turn the tables and one of those individuals was out somewhere with their children, like out at a restaurant or at a park or something, and someone confronted them and started cursing at them, that would be the first person to punch them in the mouth. Like (laughs) they would say, you can't do that with my kids around here. But meanwhile, because the guy's a politician, they you know, there's no rules and you're allowed to do that. So that was, um, well, you know, I think that to me is 
just unacceptable across the board yeah. with, you know, you, you can have differences of opinions. If you want to have some, a peaceful protest, that's great. But when it comes to uh, the children and the profanity and all that, and just the intimidation factor, like, I think they thought they were really going to get hurt. I think that's not, that's cool. not cool. And you know what? It speaks to this kind of alarming degradation of civil discourse, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in that we've seen not only in Canada, but elsewhere. Um, I'm not sure where that's going to, where that's going to go, but and I, <laughs> I really don't think I don't have solutions for it. I'm just making an observation. It's interesting to see. Um, the, I wanted to mention the, the all in podcast also just before we wrap things up, it seems a slow week and we almost felt an hour here. You're, you're like, you listen to the all in podcast mm-hmm. and it's one of my favorites. And I, I wait for it every Friday to come out. And so it's these, these four, um, you know, very wealthy investors and, you know, different, different personalities, but they get together and it's a really frank, interesting, uh, discussion. And, um, they're, they call themselves the besties. And there's a little bit of a controversy between two of them right now. And, uh, there was some speculation that the podcast might be in jeopardy. They might now, apparently they're one of the top business podcasts. I think they have over a million listeners a week and like, they have got this golden goose, this media property, and they're just, on the verge of pissing it away because they're having like a little high school argument. It seems ridiculous. That is ridiculous. But you know what is that's often what happens is petty, petty disputes can sometimes blow up, you know, uh, businesses or other things like this. I didn't actually know that there was a controversy. So when I, you, when you mentioned to me, I haven't even had time to dig into it, but it's a great, it's a great podcast. I think it's interesting. I think um, from a business standpoint, it, there's a lot of interesting thing themes and stuff they talk about, um, and uh, it's an interesting window into a class of investor slash business people that um, you wouldn't otherwise ha- have, have access, access to. to. Yeah, in a really informal way. Yeah, and uh, that's what is you know I people people often say you know the people's attention span is eight seconds. I'll listen to something for three hours if it's interesting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's eight seconds if it sucks, and then you just click on to the next <laughs> thing. But but to me, I found that one. And I, I saw a lot of people having in the comments saying, like, this is, you know, we need this. We need this podcast. So kind of figure, figure your shit out. Um, and just before we go, um, and, and this pulls in a couple of the, the things we've talked about today, and reconciliation and brands and corporate uh, management of, of issues like this. What do you make of the, uh, you know, what's going on with Ryerson University right now where they're being pressured to, you know, change the name of the university, um, you know, pulling down statues, burning churches. Um, there's a, a, a recommendation now or a proposal to change the name of Dundas Street because of like, and I don't even know who the hell Dundas was, but apparently was not a very nice guy. And so, but like, you just think of the implications of all of this and like, where, where does it stop? Like what, you know, what is this, is this helping anything? Is this fixing anything? Or do you think this is like an, an actual important part of this process to be like ripping down these, these names and these statues? I don't think there's a, I don't think there's an easy sort of template to apply to the, the issue and say, Oh, okay. That this is where it makes sense to do it. And this is where it doesn't make sense to have this kind of historical reckoning of individuals um, I think, I think from a historic perspective, th- there are some people who, like, obviously, when you look back at history, perceptions and attitudes towards uh, minorities or ethnic groups or racial groups 
are going to be different and they're not going to align with more modern sensibilities. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's saying, Oh, well now that it's 2021, we have to throw out all these historical figures. I think putting them in perspective and, and making sure that people understand um, their views and, and, and the, maybe the contemporaneous, you know, social norms just so that you can understand, you know, why, why they thought they things they did or, put those views in perspective is important, but at the same time, there's some people who, if you, if you had a role in an egregious practice, um, and, and that's all being brought to light, like in the case of Egerton Ryerson, I look at that and say, I don't know enough about the full, full history of him and, and what he contributed, but what I do know of, it's, it's hard to see how it, you know, you can maybe keep that guy's name on on an institution, um, and it wouldn't it wouldn't shock me if 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 you know that 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 school starts a multi year process of figuring out how it redefines itself for the future, especially if mm-hmm. if um, you know it looks like we're going to spend the next two years trying to understand the full full picture of residential schools, and then. Mm-hmm. You know, in that light, it's going to be even harder to to, to say, "Oh, we we you know we can live with this," because right. I, I hate to boil it down to this, but from a from a fundraising standpoint, it's going to get harder and harder for a mm. place like that to get corporate yeah. and other donors to to say, "Oh, we're gonna we're gonna put our brand alongside it." It's if you know, I'm making a lot of assumptions, but. Well, maybe that's the thing. You have to hit them where where it hurts, and where it hurts is at the bottom line or their their top line revenues from like donations are a huge source of income for uh, for universities, and and you know maybe that's ultimately what it comes down to. But you know, I, I don't think this is going to be. I don't think this is over by any stretch, and you're going to see a lot of. Uh, and maybe this is maybe this is a good process. Um, maybe you know, it's, I'm sure it's cathartic for the people who who are ripping it down. And like and a lot of these names that we hear, I have no idea what their backstory is. And like, I didn't even know the guy's Egerton. Is that his name? Yeah, odd name also. But uh, maybe this is part of the process, reinventing the country one uh, one story at a time. Yeah, yeah. You know what? That's um, that's perhaps what we're looking at. Um, and it's, it, in some ways, you know, it's not when you look at the way um, other countries have had to wrestle with uh, historic, ugly historic um, his, uh, histories. Uh, that doesn't make sense. Ugly, ugly parts of their history. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's a bit of a journey they have to go on and different countries have dealt with it different ways. Um, it'll be interesting to see how, how this unfolds in Canada. Okay. We can't let you go without getting some of your, <laughs> you already know what I'm going to say your hockey predictions. So is, is uh, I think third games tonight it is tonight. Yeah. Is that right? So Habs are down and everyone in the States is like, why are you calling them the Habs? So anyway, that's a whole, yeah, Google it. But um, they're down two games to none. What do you think is going to happen tonight in Montreal? Uh, well, I don't know. Have you watched the first two I games? <laughs> I did. Okay, yeah. I, I did too. I don't know. I, to me, I think, you know, it's impressive how well Montreal is doing, but I can't see how they can, Overcome the the ninety eight million dollar roster that uh, Tampa <laughs> is icing. You every think night. they're running out of gas, or they're running into a wall? Uh, okay, there's a, like 
I think even our friends who are Montreal fans would admit that you've got an outstanding goalie and you've got a solid de- defensive core and you've got some like guys who are who are a f- forward um set of forwards who are playing like out of their minds well for who they are but is that enough to beat a team that is so stacked like Tampa is um now what do you you mentioned the the their salary uh the cap issue i don't know if anyone well i know some people know i'm not sure everyone knows this that they kind of they pulled a move with their salary cap this year that is getting a lot of um attention for the wrong reasons do you are you you're familiar with the situation right yeah basically because well they had i think it was mostly kucherov's salary but there's no salary yeah. cap in the playoffs and kucherov missed the whole regular season was on long-term they hit him on long-term yeah IR. so his money that he's he would have earned or did earn i guess um uh, didn't count against the cap but he comes back in the playoffs and he's basically hasn't counted the whole the whole season well also they got to use that nine and a half million dollars to hire out to get other yeah, players yeah and so then when the playoffs start they activate him and it's like getting a free 10 million dollars mm-hmm. of of talent on your team and so um the speculation like the, the big question is did they do that on purpose was that probably was he really injured for that amount of time or was that did they do that to win the hey the leafs have sent guys off to long-term ir Oblivion <laughs> to get them off. Of the- I think they're still paying Ty Domi, <laughs> <laughs> but some of the terrible con- and they're p- still paying. Uh, who was that last coach? Babcock. Yeah. Like Jesus. But I think they're. Anyway. I think at last year they were still paying David Clarkson too. So like the. But this, this is like what is this? Is this is this an ingenious uh, exploitation of a loophole, or is this like a super dickish thing that they need to address? Uh, I don't know. Could be both. I guess it depends where you live. If you're in Tampa Bay, it's yeah. great. But it's um, I've, if I don't know if you're you're in a similar boat, but like I I'm not a Montreal fan, but I found myself kind of rooting for them because the team kind of won me over heart wise watching them just become this team, and I have to say I'm kind of irritated that like they're just what they they they're out shooting Tampa Bay two to one in the last game and just like and the goals that they were getting like just, they can't get a bounce. The right, you know, it can't get a lucky bounce. And so I'm going to predict that Montreal is actually going to win tonight. I, I can see them winning one game at home, right? I don't think they'll be swept. Yeah. I don't see that. I don't think they're going to win. I can't see them coming back at this point, but all right. What do well, I The beautiful know? thing is now we have your, your prediction on the record. And so what that means is they're going to win the Stanley <laughs> Cup, obviously. Well, we know, we, we know who our, our friends can thank if that happens. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Anything else? Or are you ready to wrap her up? Uh, let's wrap it up. Okay. Thank you very much for uh, making the time here. And thanks to everybody for listening. We do have three extra books of Molly's to give away. We have this contest. It's super easy. I don't know why people aren't doing it. Um, we know people are listening because I can see the downloads. So this book, Indestructible, is uh, hot off the presses. It's a great book. Uh, and if you enjoy, if you're listening to this, you enjoy corporate communications issues management, all you have to do is go to Apple Podcasts, find Reputation Town, do a search, leave a review for the show, and send us a screenshot of that review because it can take a couple days for the reviews to, to populate on Apple. Send it to us by email by twitter any you know we're pretty available send it to us in any way and we will get you one of those books 
three of them left uh, up for grabs and uh, you can get it for free. Cool. Cool. Do it. And Paranak, you can do it too. <laughs> if you want, maybe you're uh, one of our three listeners. Anyway, great to chat with you and uh, looking forward to doing it again. Have a great weekend and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks Warren. See you soon. Thanks for stopping by. If you liked this episode, please rate, review, or recommend the show. See you next time.